Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. How are you doing? <laughs> Hi, Carrie. I'm good. I, I think I ate too many biscuits on the train. <laughs> I think you ate just enough biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling a little sugary. Yeah. Um, no, I'm good. I'm tired, but I'm well. I'm, I'm, um, I'm really excited about today's show, actually. Yeah, well, we'll get into why we're both tired today, won't we? <laughs> Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we stayed in a hotel in Sheffield in separate rooms. Um, <laughs> again, more on that later. But first, I'm going to tell you about today's show. So today we're going to be talking about literature that encompasses a range of different voices, from the ensemble novels of authors like William Faulkner, Jennifer Egan, and Yag Gyasi, to short story collections that directly engage with the perspectives of different people, or even animals or things. We have a very exciting guest today, Zadie Smith, who has just published her first short story collection, Grand Union, which I think could be described as a playful, ambitious symphony of different voices. Would you say so? Definitely. And also styles and forms. Yes. It's very playful. Yeah. And and you could say that about her novels as well. So we thought this theme really fit with her body of work, not just this collection. We were both supposed to interview Zadie in Sheffield last night, in fact. My train was delayed. Octavia did it solo. She killed it. I came in at the very end. It was amazing. We can't wait for you to listen to this. But before we get to it, Octavia, do you want to introduce Sadie? I will. And I will also say that I like missed you up there, man. <laughs> That's very nice of you to say, but you don't need me. Oh, Spread your wings it. and fly <laughs> with Sadie. <laughs> fly with Sadie. I mean, we should all fly with Sadie. It was really, it was really incredible to, to speak to her. She's a She's she's a profoundly brilliant human being. And I'm going to tell you all the wonderful things about her right now. Go on. She is the author of the novels White Teeth, The Autograph Man, On Beauty, NW and Swing Time, as well as a novella, The Embassy of Cambodia, and two collections of essays, Changing My Mind and Feel Free. She's also the editor of The Book of Other People. Zadie was elected a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature in 2002 and was listed as one of Granta's 20 best young British novelists in 2003 and again in 2013. She's currently a tenured professor of fiction at New York University and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters and it was kind of mind-blowing to talk to her actually I grew up reading her books and as a Londoner her fiction set in London I don't know it was I think the first time I've been genuinely a bit starstruck yeah I'm afraid this might be a bit of a a fangirly I I think I think I don't think your interview was fangirly you kept your cool (laughs) I hope I held it together (laughs) (laughs) so today you'll hear Octavia's live interview with Sadie We thought we'd do something a little bit different today and give you the whole interview in the podcast rather than an edited version. It was really brilliant and we think it's worth it. So thank you for sticking with us for a little bit longer this month. We will talk more generally as usual about our theme, which is voices in literature. And finally, we will give some book recommendations. And Zadie was so kind to give one at the live event too, so you'll hear hers. So please join us for the next hour to hear our voices and maybe even some others. That's just terrible copy, isn't it? It's bad copy, but I support you in it because it's exactly, it does what it says in the tin, man. They're going to hear our voices no. and maybe one other. No, there was, <laughs> there were better things I could do with that. I'm ashamed. Baby. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Welcome. How are you doing? Hi. Um, we're going to start with a reading. Yes, I've got a bit of a cold. You have to excuse, excuse the sniffles. Um, 
I'm going to read from a story called Kelso Deconstructed, which is about uh, a man called Kelso Cochrane, who was uh, killed in a, a kind of racist attack in the 50s. This is the first five pages of that story. The people are Kelso and Olivia, a couple. The setting, a shabby rented room on the Bevington Road in Portobello. It was Kelso's room until five weeks ago when Olivia moved in. Kelso is from Antigua, originally. He's a carpenter. Olivia is a trainee nurse from Jamaica. They're engaged to be married, although they will never marry. By the time the next sentence arrives, it will be Saturday the 16th of May, 1959, the last day of Kelso's life. One thing about the last day of our lives is we almost never know that it is the last day. From here stems dramatic irony, and no more did Kelso know it. His mind was full of the pain in his thumb and the heat in the room. The break was unusual, low down in the final joint, Underneath the doctor's makeshift splint, he could feel the bone still moving. The pain was hard to bear, somehow shameful. He didn't want to bore her complaining about a thumb, nor to be unable to open a window while she looked on, but the frame had been painted carelessly. It was sealed shut, and there seemed to be no moving it. She stood at his shoulder, desperate for air on a sweltering afternoon. Kelso put the hub of his palms to the sash, braced himself. Perhaps you should call this Mr. Reynolds and ask him. Oh, I will, Livy, I certainly will. But they both knew he'd do no such thing. Reynolds considered himself a saint for renting to them in the first place. Plenty wouldn't. And never lifted a finger on any account, not even for the Irish on the second floor. Now as Kelso bent his knees a little to get more purchase on the frame, and Livy begged him not to bother with it, his right hand slipped, bumping the thumb against the lock. His moan was long and pitiful. Bent over himself, he watched a step forward and forced the sash. Little flecks of dry paint went flying to the carpet. The air moved a little, not much. Whew, strong woman I'm marrying. But if you want to see true, true muscle, go see about my Auntie P in Dalton. she pick you up, high up. If you think I'm strong, you don't know. Hmm, see, maybe I proposed to the wrong Miss Ellington after all that. But wait one minute, what does his Auntie P look like, I wonder? Olivia cracked up. Broad as tree men, side by side. Ooh, I see, I see. Kelso put his good hand around Olivia's waist and leaned into her. They looked out together over Notting Hill. It was Whitsun Bank holiday, hottest day of the year so far, and the streets were relatively empty excepting the little half-moons of people gathered outside the doors of the pubs and a domino place on the next corner. He was conscious of the fact that many people were presently boarding trains and coaches on their way to the seaside or other pleasant locations. He could not offer her any of that, but still their Saturdays were precious, as they are to all working people. And when the hammer fell on his thumb in the workshop on Wednesday, that had been his first thought, ooh, let this be brief. Whatever this is about to be, pain, doctors, pharmacy visits, all of that business, Lord pray let it be done with by Friday night. But all this morning, wandering with Olivia through the Saturday market as he smiled and nodded whenever she pointed out a nice basket or a good-looking mango or a brass carriage clock, his only true thought had been thumb, 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 thumb. It was the same when his younger brother Mal came by. His little brother had not neglected to bring the ginger wine, 
He arrived laden with fresh gossip from back home and amusing off-colour stories from the factory floor at McVitie's, but Kelso could not get any of the usual pleasure from it. He sat glumly in his chair, his hand very still, pressed between his thigh and the armrest, a copy of the Reader's Digest open in his lap. It was left to Mal to commandeer Kelso's precious downset record player, upon which he now played half a dozen melancholy jazz standards. I'll be seeing you. They can't take that away from me, the very thought of you. Each one about loss and death and love, and therefore thematically consistent with what was about to occur. That's it, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. That was lovely. <laughs> it's so nice to hear you read it. Thank you. Um, it's also, it seems like a great place to start actually, that story, because it has a lot of what many readers of your work I think have really come to love, which is that really well-observed characterization. But it's also a story that deconstructs itself right. in a more uh, formal, formal literary way. Slightly annoying way. Well, yeah. slightly annoying. <laughs> <laughs> you said yeah. it. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> I, um, uh, no, I got a real kick out of it. But oh, could you talk a little bit about it for anyone who hasn't read it yet? Um, I think it came out of... Um, uh, my mum had gone to visit Kelso's grave with some friends, with a, um, a guy who puts up uh, plaques to black history um, around the city, kind of unofficially. Um, and she sent me a picture of this, and uh, I, I was in the middle of writing this collection, and I, I've kind of learnt to take uh, signs from my mum seriously. She's quite a good source of ideas. <laughs> um, and when she sent me this, I, I remembered the story, I thought about it, um, and I thought about it as a vehicle for all the feelings I'd had, uh, you know, reading the news in, in America and here as well. Um, but then almost immediately, I, I think it was because I was having an email exchange at the time with Sally Rooney, we were discussing fiction. And uh, she has some very strong ideas about fiction. <laughs> and uh, it was interesting, this idea that when you have a, a story, um, and you choose to make it into fiction, to narrativize it, it always feels like a, str a strange thing. Like, uh, obviously, a smart writer knows not to make it too dogmatic, or, but no matter how sophisticatedly you do it, you have an intention, no? And you're trying to pull something out of a reader, and it can always feel a little bit like manipulation, I suppose. You know how to make them feel this way, you know how to make them feel that way. Something I... Remember Hitchcock saying about his films, he thought it was like typing. You press one button, they scream. You press another, they laugh. Um, That's classic Yeah, Hitchcock. it's a very manipulative <laughs> idea. Um, and then I thought, I guess, from some things that Sally said ab about other theories of art, like in the theatre, particularly Brecht, right, that the idea that you could... Um, that realism is a little bit like people taking out the popcorn to watch the tragedy in somebody else's life sometimes. It can feel that way. And one of the things Brecht wanted to do was say, yes, look at this tragedy, but also be aware of what you're doing, being aware of, of what this is. This is a kind of performance. Um, and I thought, I very rarely see that in fiction, you know, the realisation that the story is artificial. Or if it is, it's incredibly tiresome, you know, that kind of postmodernism once you makes you want to jump off a cliff. So I thought, how can I do both things? Is it possible to make the reader aware 
that I, I am using this story for a reason, and at the same time have the people in that demonstration be humans. You know, that was kind of the whole point, because I'm often aware of the way these stories are told, even with the best intentions, you know, on the left, when we talk about the black body this and the black body that, I think, well, my brother isn't a black body, he's a human being with a name. Right. And I don't, I don't really want to think of the people who are most intimate to me in, in these set phrases, you know? Yeah. Um, so I really wanted to write about Kelso Cochrane as a man, as a human, and just try to imagine the, the very you know, granular, ordinary details of the last day of his life. Because when you kill someone, you're taking from them the reality, the entire world. The world ends when you kill someone for that person. Um, and trying to render that is, is what I wanted to do, basically, yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned Sally Rooney because I have the next question is Sally Rooney makes a cameo in she this make a kind story. Of cameo. Lots of writers do this. Tolstoy's in there and Tony Cade Bambara and the French poet called Francis Ponge. Because I, I, I wanted to make it out of, it is made out of language, you know. Like mm. one of the fantasies of realism is that, you know, it's just like a movie that's running and you just happen to be watching it. That's my earrings on the podcast. <laughs> Don't move too much. They're very, very nice um, earrings for the listeners. <laughs> uh, and that's not how it is. You know, stories are made out of ideas, out of language, out of arguments, out of discussions you have. Um, and sometimes you bury all that scaffolding, but sometimes I think it's kind of interesting to see how stories are constructed and that, and that being thoughtful about them or constructing them consciously doesn't mean you have to lose what we also love about stories, which is exactly their magic, you know, the sense of animating people fictionally making them live when they don't or bring them back to life when they're gone right absolutely do you think that the short story is a more appropriate form to reveal that scaffolding in no actually I, uh, for me a beautiful novel if you mean you know feeling that a person exists we were just talking backstage about olive kittredge elizabeth strout like that kind of extended animation of a human is to me sublime you know and you have to be very, very gifted to pull that off in a short story. <laughs> um, but stor short stories can be the object of, of many different kinds of um, play. That's To me, that that's what's interesting. Yeah, and that really comes out in this collection. It feels like a really playful collection. There's a lot you're experimenting with a lot of different styles, um, which for me, as a reader of your work, was like wonderful. I loved reading you trying out apocalyptic futurism and like. <laughs> yeah, <know. laughs> I was feeling a bit apocalyptic that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I wonder because you know this is your first short story collection. Yeah. So why now? Why did it come into being in this time? Um, I don't know. I I'm, I'm. I guess I'm in the middle of my life, and you get a bit bored with yourself. At <laughs> that point, um, and and sh and short stories are, you know, uh, so many different kinds of escapism. You know, a novel is too, but I, in my experience of writing novels, you start the escape in very high spirits, and by the end, you've made a new form of prison for yourself, <laughs> um, which you then have to answer to for the next four years. You know, um, so uh, stories seem to me a chance to express a lot of different sometimes contradictory ideas, voices, and, and also, t if I'm honest, I really did want to uh, make a point, I think, um, sometimes I guess with my students in mind, of, of the p possibilities of language, you know, that they are many and they're not singular. Um, 
what has almost disappeared from my classes is anything which isn't in the first person. I don't know if you've come across that, but um, that interested me. That it seems to me like symbolic of the idea that speech is writing and that anything else is kind of artificial. <laughs> it really does strike me sometimes that we there's a kind of idea about writing which go has gone become platonic again. It's gone back to the idea that if you're doing shadows on the wall, you're doing something naughty and deceitful, and you better come out in the light and just say what you mean. And that's not... I like the shadows on the wall. That's, that's what fiction is to me. Yeah, it feels more artful that way, doesn't right. it? Do you think that, like, emphasis on the first person is related to social media and the fact that people are narrativizing their own lives so consistently these days? I don't think it's just social media. I think it, it is the, the writing that happens online tends to be in the first person. And the more firsty person it is, um, it feels itself to be more authentic. I, I really, um, I think it is an age gap thing. I grew up in an era of like French literary theory, you know, where the principle was, who does it matter who is speaking? That's the line of Bart. And the idea of the writer was one of a completely new form of humility. You know, we come out of the Second World War of these ideas of, you know, inflated selves, powerful selves, um, autonomous selves who go around killing others. So by the time you got to 60s and 70s, the self was like this very shameful thing. And an author was someone who, you know, was not like this great authentic creator of voice, but just someone through whom language passes. And I honestly, even long out of college, I still feel that way. I mean, I understand that I write these books, but only nominally. I mean, the, the, what passes through a writer is language, and language is, goes back much further than you, at great distances beyond you. It doesn't belong to you in that sense. You add to it your sensibility, perhaps. But there's no my book without, you know, I don't know, West African literature, British literature, American literature, it all passes through you. And um, it, it doesn't feel like authorship in the way that perhaps people feel they're authoring a blog. I don't feel that way, no. I wrote it, but so did a lot of other people. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful way to think about it, actually. And the, to slightly dispel the myth of the singular brain of the artist, right? Because most true art is collaborative in one form or another, whether it's... It always is. Right, exactly. It would be different if language was something you made out of whole cloth every time you wrote a book, but that's just not the case. Yeah. It's shop-worn, it's shared by everybody, it's used in conversation, in legal documents, in all kinds of different written forms, and all of them lay their print on your, on your work, you know. Mm. How do you feel about character, though? Because obviously within pets, yeah. you're building these characters out of language, sure, mm -hmm. and that's all passing through you in that way, but particularly in your writing, your characters are so incredibly tangible, and I've, uh, when I was reading the short stories, I was thinking, I wonder if you relate to your short story characters in a different way than you relate to your novel characters, because you're with them for maybe less time, or they're less fleshed out, I don't know. How do you feel about it? I, I mean, to me, the analogy is with acting, right? Like, um, even though I know that in some quarters, uh, we're also asking actors to be basically as one with their characters, right? That the distance between the actor and the character now has to disappear um, because of the idea that it's in some way inauthentic or fake to play someone. But from, from the actors, uh, I know the process to me seems really similar. So you get the script, you, you think about this person, 
and you use yourself as kind of raw material in order to play this person. You're, you may have nothing in common with the character, but as far as I can tell from actors, the thing they try to get to is feeling. This character, though they live here and this happened to them, is sad. Have I been sad? Yes. In what ways? Think about it. How can it be extrapolated? How can it be extended? And that's exactly what I do with the characters. I, I just take the little unrealized bits of myself, you know. And, and also, of course, all the bits that are inhibited by social existence. You know, it, it's so... Uh, uh, like right now, the reason why we're sitting quite in a quite ladylike fashion, though I may change that, <laughs> um, and, and not running around screaming say. or naked or whatever, is because the presence of this thing called the other, the crowd, that inhibits us and borders what we're able to do, you know. So we've done things like put on makeup, which I'm sure you weren't that interested in doing, and nor was I, but we've done it. <laughs> and here we are, it's slightly inhibited by the crowd. And in inside of us, there might be many different types of um, personas. Somebody more masculine, someone more feminine, someone louder, someone quieter. A, a million different things that you, can't, you don't get to live in life that often without appearing to be, you know, a borderline personality or whatever. But in, in fiction, I, you can be all those things. And I think people feel it. I, you know, sometimes I'll notice someone walking down the street with earphones on, a, maybe a young girl, but if she's listening to some like heavy American hip-hop, she's moving differently. And for that moment, she's not quite the girl walking down the street. She's the guy singing the song, or she's in a different country, in a different mindset. I think these slippages happen all the time. Um, and they're they give us a little bit of anxiety because we're told in the culture that it's important to be yourself. But inside most people, as far as I can tell, it's just like a raging chaos <laughs> that, <laughs> that they have to spend a lot of their day hiding from everybody all the time. And, um, and fiction is the, the place where all those uh, conflicted feelings, people, voices, ideas, gets a little airing. And so I, I just follow them, you know the boy in me, the old person in me, the terrified person in me, the coward, the liar, all these things that you could be in full extension but suppress one way or another, get, get an airing here. Which is wonderful because then we get to air ours as we read them, that's the right. thing, right? Like In what Aristotle thought was a hypothetical arena, basically the definition of a safe place because it's not happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Listening to you speak about that then as well, I was thinking about the piece you wrote just recently for the New York Review of Books called Fascinated to Presume, in, defen in defense of fiction, excuse me, um, where you say you've always been an inconsistent personality, and it's something that I related to immensely as well, like also the idea of having lots of voices in my head and always looking to reading as a place to find homes right. for them, right, and to feel uh, seen and held by that, like right. you say. Um, but I wonder, do you relate to voice differently as a reader? than as a writer, or does it feel very much in the same place for you? Um, no, I mean, I love to hear voice and I enter into it fully, you know. I kind of dis disappear with the writer to wherever they're going, and, and my childhood experience of reading was, uh, you know, deeply, I, I suppose, escapist, that, you know, I'd be reading and if somebody was talking to me, I. I found the real, the real world, quote-unquote, to be incredibly annoying and distracting <laughs> to, to this I experience I was having, having with a book. And that, that has remained, you know, I, I kind of fall into them 
and fall into place with them and feel with them. Yeah, it's important for me. It's a way for me to feel. And it, it may be that it's a, not a particularly good personality trait. Like some people are much perhaps better at intimacy. And for me, I, I, knowing people has happened a lot at a remove, knowing them through their books. And certainly as a professional writer, though I am a huge fan of writers, um, I almost never, apart from my writers who are close friends, once I've read the book, I feel I have the best of that person. Nothing is added for me by going to meet them. <laughs> 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 not, not to me, th what I love is in, is in the book. And um, so I, I'm always aware of being, being a disappointment retrospectively to the people who meet me. Because <laughs> I, I know that feeling. The book, is, the book is the thing where this incredible intimacy happens. Yeah. No, it's absolutely right. I think also a writer, just like an actor stands alongside the character, a writer right. stands alongside their work. Um, and definitely I've had conversations with writers where I wish I haven't done it. Yeah, <laughs> it would have been better if you just avoided the whole... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's not happening right now oh for good, the record. Oh good. <laughs> yeah, we'll be right to know that. Um, <laughs> I noticed... Well, actually, no, I have another question about that, that essay, actually. Um, because the idea of putting on different voices has become really linked to the idea of cultural appropriation. Right. And you address that in this essay. And in this collection, you're directly engaging with very contemporary culture in some of the stories. Uh, there's one called Now More Than Ever, which is about cancel culture mm. and kind of also addresses these thoughts. Um, and it feels like currently there is great anxiety about who tells stories, who gets to tell which stories. And I was thinking of that again when you said this first-person narration thing was something that you're seeing so much in your in your classes. Um, did you find that working through these stories helped you figure out how you feel about these issues? I mean, I I, I come from a place of ventriloquism, right? I that's that's just where I always was, and it, it's a habit in my family. I come from a family of actors, comedians, people who's job it is to be not themselves <laughs> or, or to let voices pass through them. Um, so so that, that comes fairly naturally to me. But, but the debates around them I found interesting. And what I always find interesting about such debates is that I just always want to follow the, the logic behind the argument. I hear the argument, but I very rarely hear it pursued to its ultimate conclusions. If you genuinely believe this thing, the, this, this and this follows. And that's all I'm ever trying to do in those essays, is just to follow the line of logic and just to make sure um, that we understand what we think, what, what we're saying. And I think in that essay, that, that's a good example. Like, you may read the whole thing and feel like fiction is disastrous. It's a disastrous habit, taking people's imaginary bodies, putting their imaginary voices into them and making them walk around. You may find that an absolutely uh, beyond the pale, inappropriate uh, artistic event. Um, but I, I don't, and I try to, to explain the reasons why, as a reader, I'm not even particularly interested in arguing as a writer, but as a reader, I have found that practice of um, ventriloquy, avatarism, and uh, compassionate interest in those who are not like us, uh, edifying and helpful and moving. Yeah, and, and necessary, I mean, uh, well... And necessary, yeah. Yeah, I suppose, uh, as a, I've always been a reader, so I don't know how it would be to engage with those ideas if you're someone who hasn't always read fiction, for right. example, but 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, being a reader of fiction has made me a better interpersonal human being. Right. <laughs> you know, like learning how to have relationships. Right. It, th- it's a, it's a, a lesson in... Um, I've been thinking a lot about this kind of internal tension we have inside us. I was thinking about it last night. Like The title, Grand Union, is a little bit um, tongue-in-cheek, you know? Um, I was thinking about the, the ways we try to create unions within us of conflicting elements. Mm-hmm. And like the, the title story was to me the, the kind of beginning of the whole book in my mind. It's about, uh, it's called the dialectic, and it's about, basically it's about the idea that lots of people, including myself, are always aware every day that the mass murder of animals is a moral nightmare. It's like a daily holocaust, and yet I eat meat. I was interested in that. Like, how does that work, that dialectic in your mind, where you know the truth, you know its opposite, and you synthesize it in what? Like, the Hegelian idea is you synthesize it in this further truth. But it seems to me, in our daily lives, we synthesize it in self-deception. And we're talking about Gia Dolatino, she's so good at, at that exact argument, that so many of the things in our lives are about self-deception, lies, comforting narratives, stories that make us feel better. Um, and all the way through the short stories, I, get, I mean, I'm drawing from myself all the kind of comforting lies I tell myself. And there is another way, I guess I read a lot of existentialism, and the hope there is that exactly that conflict that you feel in yourself, that terror, that anxiety, that you are not uh, a single consciousness or not a single person, that 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 is what life is, and it is not to be resolved, actually. (laughs) And resolving it means being something less than human. And and we were talking earlier, the thing which keeps on striking me now is that when I was young, the fear was that machines would become more human, like that was the great fear, right? It's all going to be these AI robots, blah, blah, blah. But the other thing seems to be happening is that we are becoming robotized. We are behaving like the algorithm. We are trying to make ourselves singular in one place, easy to sell to, the right data points, we can be understood. But humans aren't like that. I can't fit into those algorithms personally. I find it very uncomfortable. It is very uncomfortable. Yeah, I find it like I can't breathe, pretending that I am an algorithm and respond like an algorithm with the same sentences everybody uses and the same jokes and the same memes. I, I can do it to be to join the crowd and and get the acceptance of the crowd because everybody wants the acceptance of the crowd. That social existence, but what used to be beautiful about social existence is you could retreat into the private self where you didn't have to be that person, where you could just be whatever conflicted chaos you are. And I still need that space. I certainly need it to think. Right? I can't. I can't think in the group. I can't always say, what do you think about this idea, everybody? And then get all, <laughs> get all the responses and then modify myself so that I get a better response next time. Yeah. I can't do that. No, that, I mean, that would be exhausting. But that's what we're all doing. That's what we're all day doing. Day and night. Yeah, it's true. And it's exhausting. It is. But also, ambivalence is hard, right? Yeah, and that's it's very hard. That, you know, holding two contradictory ideas in your mind at once. And that story, as you mentioned, the dialectic, is very much about that as well that but that might be our job that might be the job yeah. of adults to, oh yeah to, to deal with ambivalence and contradictory ideas and 
Just deal with that discomfort. Just hold it. Just hold it and live in it. That I might it be what you have to do as a grown-up. I think it is. Yeah. But I think it's also something... It's taken something. me a really long time. I'm 43. <laughs> I I'm still yeah, rail against it. I was, it sucks. Yeah, it's, it's horrible. Uncertainty is certainly much more comforting, particularly when there's a crowd behind you saying, you go, girl. Right, exactly. <laughs> and if all you need to express that certainty is, is 120 characters... Even or better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you think of all of your fiction as dialectical, just taking from that title, the title story? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it certainly, uh, like, people point out to me the prevalence of pairs. I mean, originally when I was a kid, twins, the worst literary metaphor in the world, twins. <laughs> um, so uh, there is, there's a bit of that, right? But I think I was so invested when I was young in, um, and in resolving contradiction, um, and it certainly might be something to do with being so obviously of two things, mixed race, so the conflict which is in everybody is like stamped on my face. Um, but but uh, that dreamed of resolution, I don't really dream of anymore. I, I like my awkward self. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind it. And I also think it's, it's uh, unavoidable. Um, and I have noticed like over the years, like sometimes with the essays, uh, even looking at my own family, because it's so various, because none of us agree on anything, we all have different opinions, ideas, and so that when I'm writing something, I'm always forced to think of all these different perspectives that are in my family, in my house. Um, I can't ever say, even though it would be so easy to say, you know, oh, these type of people think this, and you know, those guys, and these guys, th all those guys are in my house. <laughs> They're either in my mum's house or my house, or we're all living together in this state of tension. You know, white, black, gay, straight, male, female, I, that's my family. And so I can't do the thing of separating these identities and giving them a f hierarchy and saying, well, that's that. It's never that. I can't do that. That's not a final situation in, in my arrangement. So it forces you to constantly think, well, I think this, but they think that. and. Why do they think that? What is the case? What, what are the reasons for their thought? How much of it is delusion? How much of it is true? How much of it is rational? How much of it is sentimental? I have to ask myself that all the time. And, it, and in the end, what seems like weakness, like why can't you just get with the program, ends up being a kind of strength, I think. Yeah, well, and if you ha have in your mind that you'll take the position of, of being uh, a, a student of the people around you, it makes that a lot easier, I think. Right, but it, it's, it is always tiring. It's, it's like tiring having to think shit through all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it is, um, I, 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 that's the only way I can feel that I'm not in bad faith. That's the best way I can put it. I need to think everything through. You mentioned in your answer the word metaphor, and metaphor is something that comes up a lot in this collection, um, explicitly and unexplicitly. There's one story called The Lazy River, which is both a metaphor and a non-metaphor. Right. <laughs> it's about one of those, um, I'm sure you guys have been to those kinds of swimming pools where you get a rubber ring and you float around yeah. and around and around. Um, and, uh, you said in another interview that it was motivated by personal, political, historical, and cultural despair, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is a great quote. <laughs> mm. But do, do you think that um, 
when you're dealing with those very big, big feelings, yeah. uh, metaphor helps. And do you think it helps to deal with feelings like despair, actually, to look at it slightly not face on, I guess? Right. That's what I try and sometimes say to my students, that I understand that the urge, when you find something very unjust or you really hate it, the urge is to say, basically in block capitals, I really, really hate this. But as a reader, we all know that that doesn't work. Emotion is not more expressed by intensification of size of letters or exclamation marks. <laughs> it's intensified by rhetoric, which is artificial and it's perhaps uh, and th perhaps it's suspicious in some way, the way that uh, Plato was suspicious of it, but it, but it works. It's a, it's a kind of tool we have with language to really persuade, argue, move, and there's so many different elements of rhetoric, and you can use them together, and metaphor is a beautiful and useful part of it. But, but in that story, I think the despair was just, I, I really only realized it later, like why did this particular lazy river become a story and why was it about despair and, and I realized the metaphor really is about inevitabilism and if there was one word for, that sums up for me the past whatever it's been 12 years since the iPhone it's this sense of inevitabilism that you are told day and night well it's inevitable this is technology and this is just how, how it is and it starts small and then the the amount of things you hand over to to the technology gets larger and larger. One of the first things was your children. It's inevitable. They have to have a phone because they have to go to school. What? <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> so they all have to have the tracking device and the technology and that because they have to go to school. Okay, that's the first thing. Then it's the things started to get bigger. I mean, to me, the children was the biggest thing of all, but that went first. And then things like democracy started to fall in, in, into it and free will and the right to choose a government. And all fell in. And, and the exchange was always uh, convenience. It's very convenient with the map and everything. Can't deny <laughs> bloody useful to have a map. And that notes feature. Jesus. <laughs> um, and uh, it, I think what c the despair comes from, in any political system, is when you feel you have no choice. That's what it is. And even when the no choice looks like a gift, like fun, I think people are smart and feel sen still sense something's wrong here. I don't feel completely free. Like when I wake up in the morning, I don't, when I rush to look at that before my child, I don't think that's my free will. Like I don't think 10 years ago I would have thought that was a reasonable action. You know, or when I see my grandparents ignoring their grandchildren in favor of, I think 10 years ago I would have thought, fuck, what's going on there? What happened to grandma? <laughs> Or when we're all on holiday <laughs> in a beautiful environment and everyone's silent. And I, I think these things which have become inevitable, um, every now and then we kind of look up and think, wait, wait, what? What happened? <laughs> and when did we agree to this? And is this okay? Is this... Uh, so that part I thought, and uh, the thing which always struck me is about, I don't know what sense <laughs> keeps pulling my mind, like, what is worthy of a human? Like, we are human, and in my view, sacred, and so kind of extraordinary. And is this really, is this, is this it now? <laughs> is this really, is this worthy of us? Like, because we're kind of amazing. And so I thought, I thought a lot about that inevitabilism and, and um, 
just the kind of asymmetry, the two things, that, I mean, the thing that you, I love about the past 12 or so years is asymmetry, right? So think about just black women. The internet has empowered, is a perfect example, asymmetrical power relations. So a voice that was not heard at all when I was growing up, at all, now is heard. That asymmetry is like, ha! But then, of course, there's the hidden asymmetry between all of us in these things and the people behind these things. And that asymmetry has turned out to be deadly. Yeah. And so uh, I, I'm always trying, I think, like everyone, to try and separate, like, how much of this is technological determinism and how much of this is just raw capitalism. And, and I, when I'm <laughs> moving around that river and people have just given up the will to, m to move in the opposite direction, I'm, you just hope, I'm optimistic, I'm just always hoping that this thing that we had for so long that was so important to us, our will, w will return to us. Our sense of, its, of, it, of the power that we have. Um, and the power that is not to be sold off to data harvesters for nothing. We, we, we gave them everything for nothing, for the map. I know about the map. For the map. <laughs> the map and the notes, and, but it's, it's too much. So, I, you know, when I'm writing this, I was thinking a lot about that, a lot about what is a human, what have we been, what can we be, how are we being distorted, what are our pleasures still? You know, I just wanted to remi remind myself of cool humanness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the question of pleasure is something that comes up really brilliantly in a story called The Sentimental Education, oh, yeah. which is one of my favorites in the collection. Yeah, um, filthy. It's very filthy, <laughs> yeah. We like yeah. a bit of smart, smart at literary friction. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's about a couple, they're students at university, and um, you know, there's the they represent different ways of approaching sensuality, right? And, right. and lust and love. Um, and I just wonder if you could talk a bit about it. I'd love to hear like how it came to you and, and your relationship with that story. Um, I mean, I grew up in feminism and that, that line of de Beauvoir's that women are not born but made um, is very important to me. And that's what kind of interested me in that story. Like I in what ways, you know, when, when you're young and you're trying to form yourself, one of the things you apply to is the crowd. You're asking the crowd, what should a girl be? And girls learn very, very early on. One of the first things they do is look in the mirror, right? That tells them very early on what their life is going to be like, what it means, what category they fall into. It's a very precise business. Um, and desire is in there too, what you're allowed to desire, how much. Um, and I think in, in my house, I was really fortunate um, in my mother to have someone who was not engaged really in the feminine as a category, you know? She didn't, there were, there were no, I never saw uh, any of that stuff from like magazines to, I, I just wasn't in that world. So I, I think I did grow up with free, not consciously, but free of a lot of things that when I got older and met other women, I realized are very, quite oppressive ideas of the feminine, ideas of the female, of what women might be or could be. And I I'd had less of those, I think. No one fully escapes it, but I certainly had less. And so the story is really a about that kind of 
girl who's still, her sexuality is still not um, codified by the terms, you know? She's not particularly thinking her of herself as a thing that some a thing that things are done to, which is one of the fundamental constructions of femininity as it as it was constructed. Mm. You are something that is done to. She thinks of herself instead as a doer, and all the comedy of the story comes from that really, because it turns out that that simple concept is is uh, so unusual really when you pursue it that it becomes hilarious because it's so unused to it. Um, all the metaphors of femininity are kind of receptacle constructed, and the story is inverted in that way. So, um, yeah, I had fun writing it. Yeah, it reads that way. <laughs> it's really, it's a great read. Um, I'm going to ask one more quick question, and then we'll open to yeah. the audience. Um, I just thought that you write very beautifully in this collection, as as in your other writing, but particularly here about mothers and daughters and parenthood in general. It felt right. like a really uh, uniting theme throughout the whole book um, and especially the demands complexities contradictions of it and the very physical nature of it as well right um, that physical intimacy um, did you want to emphasize that dynamic when you were writing these or is it something that's sort of emerged on its own I think it must be subconscious but um, just the idea that selfhood is something that you could kind of create in isolation and then present to people perfectly, and that they accept exactly the version of yourself that you're presenting, which is a great dream in the culture at the moment. Mm. Children are like, oh, fuck that. <laughs> they don't <laughs> care about what you think you are, they're not interested, they see you backstage in a way that most people don't want to be seen. They're extremely judgmental, as we all know. We're judgmental of our parents, and then our children are judgmental of us. and. Uh, it's it's deconstructing of of these slightly fanciful ideas of our selfhood, you know, um, and we rail against it. We all write articles about, you know, these children have taken my body and my peace and my time, and I, and all of those things are true and they're all infuriating. But they also might be, I experience them anyway, as as living, like re as real living. You know, it, it's the it's the inflated self that I realised is really exhausting. <laughs> it's exhausting carrying that person around and pretending that you are that person. And whereas the breakdown of self that that children involve, I'm sure it's not like that for everyone, but to me, it's just it feels more uh, alive. And sometimes you fight back against it, and sometimes they win. Sometimes you win for a while, but it's never finished, <laughs> and it's kind of ongoing and. Uh, I, I, it's not that children are special anyway. I think you could have this relation with, you know, uh, like I'm with Booba. You can have this relation with a cat. <laughs> have a relation with anything that lives, but it involves looking into the eyes of the cat or the child or the human and really seeing them as not you, as not subject to your fantasies and visions. And you can love them, but you're, they're not you. You don't own them. You can't control them. Um, and that I find a very enlivening relation, even though it's obviously most of the time a huge drag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that comes through right. in some of the dynamics <laughs> in here as well. No, but it, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. I don't have children, but I can imagine that. I have a cat. Yeah, he know. definitely you challenges my. Yeah, it <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, well, we should uh, have a couple of questions from the audience. <coughs> 
really interested in your comments about technology and uh, you know children and consent and you know we have given it all away for nothing. Mm -hmm. But there are um, instances now of children sort of saying, you know, no, I don't want that. Bit yeah, me. it's really exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's really really exciting. Um, but I wonder what that means for kind of mediation and fiction. Going back to that kind of idea of authenticity and yeah, I, I mean, I feel like it's. Do you think it's going to go back to that sort of first-person sort of bias, or are we thinking about something else? I think, I mean, the thing which excites me about, because I don't, I don't think, it's not that the children are objecting to being represented exactly, I think they're objecting to being used, monetized, projected as a, as a data object, to just be collected with other data objects and then sold and exchanged, and they have every right <laughs> to refuse consent to that because I don't consent to that, but we're all in it. It doesn't matter if you're involved or not, if you're photographed and taken and you've been extracted as a resource, which is then passed around the net one way or another. Um, I don't think of fiction that way, though of course there's a great history of the children of writers hating them and writing revenge memoirs, so we can all, <laughs> all look forward to that. Um, but I do, it, it is a complex exchange in fiction, but as a reader, I. So I was trying to write about in that piece. I do experience it more than anything as a gift, you know, as as a gift. And because these people are imagined, and their consciousness is uh, complexly described, but not material, you know, it's not in the world. I just find that an extraordinary gift because normally I can't see that. I don't know what's in your mind. You don't know what's in my mind. It, all our social reactions are a series of stumbling guesses you know, or assumptions or projections or... Fiction gives you access and would make you mindful, no? When you're in the head of the person, you think, you know, just thinking of, I don't know, Shakespeare's Othello. This is a stumbling attempt to understand this thing, the more, this thing that's so foreign to him. But the readers of that book over centuries saw a human. That was the gift Shakespeare was trying to... Whether he did it perfectly, it's not perfect. Othello is not the perfect more, but he has an access into something which was previously blank as far as those theatre goers were concerned. Suddenly they saw an interiority. That to me is a gift which you then take into the world as a, a kind of mindfulness, like the original example of it. Never perfect though, I mean how could it be? But the attempt to me is a gift. I'm interested in, um, like, the, the, the short story collection seems to be like very topical, very current, and um, so there's this thing about a uh, concept of like voice of a generation, which <laughs> um, I guess uh, you mentioned Sally Rooney, which like, I guess I read that it was also like a label that was uh, also assigned to her, but I'm interested in how you see that, like, um, writer, like the role of you as a writer um, in the current world, like has right. there been any change like um, to the beginning and then now uh, with the change in the world? I, I think of it as a collectivity that I've always thought of writing that way. I can't remember who first said it, but it's somebody's metaphor of literature as like a huge body of water into which everybody who writes, everybody who writes contributes a tributary, like a little stream. And the, c the comfort to me always is that I am not the only writer in the world, <laughs> because uh, that to me would be a nightmare. When I'm reading, I read as variously as possible 
that to me is literature, you know. Um, being able to move from one book to another, from one sensibility to another. The argument is always, well, how much space do you take up? The problem in my position is that I've been relatively successful, so my books have this larger footprint, um, which can lead to, you know, self-consciousness or, or uh, whatever, delusion. Um, but I know myself to be a writer amongst writers. I just know that. I know it from the community of writers I'm in. And I also know it from literary history, by the way, in which, you know, a novel I was thinking about a while ago, about a man in, from my neighbourhood who was a friend of Dickens, who sold more books than Dickens could have ever dreamt of, and was the most famous uh, London writer of the 19th century, and he is utterly and perfectly forgotten. So that is always, <laughs> always possible for every writer, <laughs> every time. So I don't... Uh, those ideas of voice of generation, I thought, sure, would make Rooney feel ill and make any writer feel ill. It's, that's not what writers are here for, to be responsible for generations. They're, they're part of a collective, a community I feel quite strongly. Um, and you can be, I feel myself to be a diaspora writer, which is a very broad church of American writers, Caribbean writers, West African writers, East African writers. I feel myself a part of that. I'm also a British writer. You know, the communities are many and overlapping, but no person holds the responsibility of the voice of generations also to completely depower the generation <laughs> who will usually speak for themselves, yeah. Was there a time when um, you started to write where you were just writing for yourself rather than for the public gaze? And if there was, when you found that you got that audience, do you think that changed you and changed the way that you wrote? I hate to, I, it's awful to admit, but I, I still write for myself. It sometimes causes problems, I think. W when I'm in a book, I'm not aware of, uh, I, I, I'm so in it, I just don't, uh, it, it's always a surprise to me when the book is published. I, I'm always in shock. And then there's this, uh, this other bit of my life. But even when I wrote these stories, I, I wouldn't, if I thought about the audience, I wouldn't be able to write them. If I, I couldn't write sentimental education if I thought anyone was going to read it. When I'm writing it, I have to believe that I'm pleasing myself and I'm, I'm enjoying whatever it is. Then the publication is full of, you know, shame. The publication is a lot of shame. It's shame that you wrote it, shame of the bad reviews, shame that you've revealed yourself to be repulsive, perverted, obsessed with the same three ideas, whatever it is. <laughs> that's shameful for all writers. That's a shameful process. But... but um, if, if you allowed, that's why I'm amazed. I think young writers who are online all the time, I admire them. They ha must have skin as thick as Ryan. I don't know how they do it. I think that's what's meant by digital native, that they have found a way not to let that stuff touch them. For me, the shame is overwhelming. And if I also engaged with it, you know, read it and was online, and I couldn't write. I could, I, that would stop me. So in order to carry on, I just go into my hole emerge every few years <laughs> in Sheffield yeah in Sheffield <laughs> beautiful place to emerge I'm going to go uh, back I recently read well kind of recently read White Teeth and oh yeah I just kind of fell in love with it oh thank you um, I just wondered though um, how the importance of history and finding your own identity is such a beautiful theme within that book whether that was like a compass for your audience it, it's taken much longer than that to find my history and my own identity. I don't think White Teeth is the... It, the White Teeth was just the beginning of a much longer 
process. I mean, the thing which really strikes me now that I'm 43 is how little I, I was taught about uh, the relationship, historical, practical, between Jamaica and England. And it's, it's been a kind of 20-year self-education <laughs> to understand that relation properly. I, I, I don't think in White Teeth I had any idea, really. Uh, I knew the most basic facts. I was 22, you know. And the schools in Britain are deliberately silent on that topic, because if you spend 10 minutes studying it, you'll, the horror is quite extraordinary. And instead, um, in we were directed very formally, I at least in my A-level, to think about uh, America and its, its slavery and its tragic race issue, and, and as if the British had never known slavery, had never been near it and never been involved in it. So. Uh, that, that part for me, as an adult, has been very important. And, and I've, what I've really learned about history is it's not just some kind of um, luxury or added extra. Uh, it, it, it explains even the most intimate parts of your life, right? Like there are so many things about family structure, uh, uh, <laughs> just the, the way Jamaicans think, talk, are with each other, which would have made a great deal more sense to me had I known anything about the history of the country of Jamaica and the country of England and what happened between them. Um, so I, I think history is, is healing in exactly to that measure. And when you have it, you know, in buckets, as England does, maybe you don't think about that as, as an individual part of your life. But to me, England is actually a really good example. Be because they don't know their history fully, because they don't know that they were not always heroes, and that in fact they were perpetrators of... Uh, you know, a global crime, they, they then continue to think of themselves in this heroic mode. And that leads to all kinds of political disasters we're seeing right now. So uh, to me, like a f the greatest thing that could happen in this country for both black and white people is a full telling of British history. And Jamaican history is British history. Um, so yeah, that, that process for me was much longer. Should of course happened in school, but didn't. So it's been a longer journey. Okay, I think we're going to wrap up. I would love to keep talking to you for hours, but it's time. Thank um, you, thank you for, for being such a great conversationalist. I think you will all join me in a massive round of applause. Thank, thank you. you so much, thank ladies. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Larry Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright, whose interview with Zadie Smith you just heard, to talk about this month's theme, which is, well, we're calling it City of Voices, but really what it's about is literature that explores a number of different voices within one book. So I think the question that's the burning question here is, Octavia, aren't all novels full of multiple voices? What are we talking about here? Are we just talking about all of literature? Yes and no. It's a very Go good on. question, Carrie Plitt. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, all novels are full of lots of voices. And also, yes, I think we can make a distinction. Um, I think like most distinctions with literature, it's going to be a little bit flexible. So on the one hand, we're talking about what's known as the ensemble novel. Often 
it's a book where, say, each chapter is given from a different character's perspective. Um, a bit like, well, Max Porter's Grief is a Thing with Feathers came to mind where the voices of the crow, the father and the sons are very, very distinct mm. and they are playing very different roles in developing the narrative from each of their perspectives. Or... Um, a more traditional example of that is, you know, Virginia Woolf's novel The Waves, for example, where the voices are less distinct because the whole point is that they merge together into a sort of strange ambient shared consciousness. But the point is that you are following different human beings mm. or as I uh, lay dying. Exactly. As I lay dying. Jonathan Franzen, the corrections, freedom, freedom, big one. And then there's quite an extreme example of it, which is George Saunders Lincoln in the Bardo which is a novel told totally in fragments of different voices. Um, so there's a lot that can be done with the form if if the if the way into developing the narrative is very much linked to vocal expression of different characters, right? Like the expression of their persona in yeah, in that in through their perspective, but also maybe through speech. Is are we saying mm. that there's a lot of emphasis on speech, maybe? I think so. I think that's a good working definition mm. to go from. Um, it's interesting because voice in terms of how people who read and work with books tend to talk about it is about speech, but it's also about narrative mode. And I think we should explore both because voice can also be a perspective and not just what somebody is saying. Right, absolutely. And actually, we just listed a bunch of fiction, but then there's nonfiction books like Lisa Tadeo's Three Women, which is using three distinct voices that are actually three distinct real human beings mm. because it's a non-fiction book. But the voice of the author obviously is the intermediary, which is complex. But that's another book where each chapter is um, headed by the name of a different character recurring back at, you know, returning to each of their stories. Totally. But, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about what we can gain through multiple voice narratives. I mean, I would recommend everyone check out... Uh, Zadie Smith's recent piece in the New York Review of Books in which she addresses this really what what does it mean to inhabit another voice and it's something that informed our discussion today certainly and one of the points she makes which I think is is very compelling and and real is that literature and fiction in particular is about empathy and many people have argued and, and many people have made counter arguments against this that that literature is a kind of form of empathy and entering or reading about a different voice is is a way of further connecting yourself to different consciousnesses that are not your own. Yeah, absolutely. But also, if you have more than one voice, right, then you're entering more than one consciousness. But you also get to experiment with the fact that we all experience reality slightly differently from one another. So if you have a multiple voice novel where every character is sharing a, a, an environment but experiencing it differently, you get to remind your readers of the fact that, you know, we're all slightly trapped within our own experience of reality. And it's what is truth? What is authenticity? It's a really clever way of teasing that out and making a reader think about that and, and maybe relax slightly their grip on their own version of events because you know we could talk about this recording session afterwards and have very different versions of it and yet we shared the space and we shared the time totally yeah I think one great example of this is is Olive Kittredge by Elizabeth Strout which I right. talk about all the time but but I think that well it's a novel and short stories but what it really does as a collection is take this one woman, Olive Kittredge, who obviously has a very specific view of who she is herself and breaks that open by 
looking at her through multiple perspectives and in multiple situations and through multiple stories. And it's a really amazing way to think about character and the way we perceive ourselves and and the way we are to other people. Yeah, and I think the same can be said for novels that use that similar tool to look at a period in history Mm. or a particular community like I always talk about him but I think about Dylan Thomas a lot in Under Milk Wood which is not so much a novel it's kind of a poem it's almost a radio play but it is it's 100% about voice but the thing that comes up when you read it or listen to it is um, the organism that's being described is actually just a single community a Welsh community that only exists in the voices of all the different characters who make it up Um, But rather than describing the place from the omniscient perspective, it's all described through people's interactions with one another. And it's wonderful. And it's a kind of brilliant meditation on collective consciousness. And we're talking about all the good things that these kinds of novels... You want to talk some trash, Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't want to talk some trash, but I think there there are a couple of traps that authors can walk into. I think one is that it is really hard to write in other voices, um, just technically. And it's one of the things that that Zadie Smith has always complimented on her ability to inhabit other voices. But I think a lot of authors are not as good at, at it. And, um, you know, when you read fiction, especially you need to believe it, and it doesn't need to be real, but you need to believe it. And if you're experimenting with lots of different voices and consciousnesses, that makes it more of a balancing act. It's more difficult. But I, I don't think we can talk about novels of different voices and, and not talk about the tricky territory that somebody's entering when they are writing in a different voice that does not come from their own experience. And especially if they are adopting the voice of a minority or or somebody less privileged than them. It, it's complicated and, and it's something that people are talking a lot about right now. Yeah, it's something that has to be done with a lot of tenderness. And it can be very uneven as well because, you know, you're going to have a different relationship to the different elements of your choral what's the word I'm looking for, Uh, like cast of characters. And I think sometimes that can be difficult too. If you're reading a multiple voice novel and you feel like the author had a more direct line to some of those characters and a less direct line to others and you get that sense of some being underdeveloped. But I think that happens in in all kinds of writing as well because after all, you know, the, the, the author is is merely one, right? Like they can travel and they can explore and they can experiment but they're still operating from within their consciousness. Yeah, and I don't think we're arguing that authors should only write from their own experience. Definitely not. But that there does have to be an awareness around the the method, I guess. Totally. Do you think there are novels where there are voices that are less important? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was uh, thinking of Jenny Offill's Department of Speculation. Which I recommended last show, yeah. Yeah, which I love. And it's very interior. Um, and so the voice of the narrator, the internal voice of the narrator is the one that we're with the whole way through. But it's written in this fragmentary way. And um, it's just an incredibly interior book. So voice to me doesn't feel important in that. Yeah. I was also thinking about, from a sort of different perspective on that question, the idea of the omniscient narrator um, who does, it's a filtered way of encountering voices and perspectives and narratives. And you can still, thanks to free and direct style, there are ways of showing voice while still having a narrator. But it is different. And I, I was really interested in Philip Pullman did this interview in the, the New Yorker recently where he was defending an omniscient narrator, which he thinks has gone out of fashion. And I think that's probably true in terms of the literature that's being published today. Yeah, Zadie was saying in the interview uh, that she found a lot of the work that crossed her desk 
as a teacher is in the first person and that she feels that there's been a real slip it's it's an interesting point. How do, I don't know. How do you feel? Do you miss omniscient narrators? Well, I love omniscient narrators. I think you can do so much with omniscient narrators. I don't like being trapped sometimes within one voice. I like it in certain novels, but I've always loved big novels that encompass the world that try to do something sort of spectacular, even if they fail. And I and I often think that omniscient narrators are part of an ambitious way of looking at fiction. Not yeah, always. I'd agree. I think that's true. I think also the trouble sometimes with voice books like Wilkie Collins' The Moonstone, which I bring up quite often, but it's it, it was one of the first, I think, to really get into that idea. of It's a mystery as well, so it's like a clever technique to use to develop a mystery where each chapter is from the perspective of a different character. But one of the characters is fucking boring. So whenever her voice comes around again, you're like, oh, cousin, yeah. whatever her name is, not again, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's true, though. That's what That's what I'm talking about in terms of difficulty. Yeah. Every single one of your characters and voices has to be compelling if well, you're switching is, between them. The thing is, her annoy her annoyingness is kind of crucial to the plot development. So it works, but it sucks also. Yeah. And it's a long book. That's why I thought Homegoing was such an amazing novel because every single chapter introduces a new character from a new perspective. And somehow I was completely riveted by that whole book. It's it's really a feat. Yeah, that sounds incredible. I've never read it. I would really recommend it. Okay. Yeah. Shall we talk about our recommendations for novels of voices? Definitely. Mine is maybe a bit of a cop out because I'm basic, I'm just rec- I'm essentially recommending an author rather than a book. But it's got to be Dostoevsky, man. Like he, <laughs> his name is Fyodor. <laughs> you might have heard of him. Yeah, I think of him as a real master of voice and perspective. His novels are really brilliant examples of the power of deeply inhabiting the psychology of, of many different characters and how you can use this to build a really potent document of a particular moment in time, politically, spiritually, philosophically, and the fact that politics, spirituality, and philosophy are never separate from also the lived reality of a human being. I mean, the Brothers Karamazov is the one that I always wang on about, and that one is very specifically explored in different voices. But generally, all of his work, he's never far from from playing with this. Um, and actually, there's a Russian philosopher and literary critic called Mikhail Bakhtin who borrowed the phrase, the polyphonic or dialogic novel, from this a musical concept of polyphony, to, or polyphony. I, I don't know how you would pronounce that. But to refer to the diversity of voices specifically in Dostoevsky novels and to evoke the way that they coalesce to create this this really rich big pictures um but yeah his work is always an argument for meditating on different perspectives and every time i go back to it he's it was he was an extraordinary mind really an extraordinary mind so yeah i have not read any dostoevsky in a long time so maybe i just need to take a big one on christmas break. yeah i think it's such a wonderful palate cleanser actually it's just it's they don't they don't move (laughs) And their brilliance doesn't move either. They're mm. just these incredibly reliable things, I think. Yeah. Lots of voices. Many voices. Good recommendation. Strong family trees <laughs> at the front of these books. <laughs> well, I am going to recommend a novel called Let the Great World Spin by Colin McCann. It was published in 2009. I really loved it when I read it. I Now thinking back about it, I sort of wonder if, if it's quite corny, but... Maybe I don't mind that. I don't know. If I read it today, I might think it was a little bit corny, but I still loved it. Tour de force is an overused word in book blurbing and descriptions of books these days. But I remember reading this and actually thinking it was a tour de force. It begins with the moment when um, Philippe Petit, Philippe Petit, 
<laughs> Never stop. <laughs> Walked on a tightrope across the Twin Towers in New York in 1974, yeah. the sort of famous moment when he, he scaled one of the towers and, and illegally crossed them on a tightrope. That wild image. Yeah, but but from that image, it, it spins out and tells lots of different stories of very different people in New York City connected by the fact that they all witnessed this moment. I think it does a really good job of telling very different stories in very different voices um, and showing how we're all connected. <laughs> you are such a cool bag. I am. I am. <laughs> and um, and it was a really brilliant response to 9-11, I think. One of the best books that I read that both confronted it but did it in this like amazingly oblique way that was still incredibly moving. And I just loved it. Maybe it's corny. I don't care. Humanity forever. <laughs> <laughs> here, here, man. No, I'm like, I'm with you. Here, here. Humanity forever. This is Literary Friction, and we are back to give our book recommendations. First, we wanted to give you Zadie Smith's recommendation from the live event that we did with her in Sheffield. So we're going to play that now, um, and then we'll come back to us in the studio. Um, you know, normally I would just always recommend a delightful novel. I love delightful novels, but I feel this like like state of emergency situation right now. So I'm going to recommend, again, as I've, I've done several places, a book called Surveillance Capitalism, which is very, very long, um, but you can also find it in podcasts and the author talking all over the place, or really any book that discusses um, our digital lives and what they actually involve. I think it's just really Im important for us all to... Uh, know what we're doing. We can then carry on if we're really into it, cool. But I think knowledge is, is really important at this point. So uh, yeah, that's Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. You know, even if you only got 50 pages into it, I think you couldn't help but be changed. So that was Zadie's recommendation, which I now feel I need to read in and order to me. understand our world. Yeah. It's very large. Maybe we can tag team. You can take the first half, I'll take the second half. Does yeah, that work? I mean, that <laughs> seems unfair to you, but sure. <laughs> um, but do you want to give your recommendation, Octavia? I would love to, yes. I just finished a book called The Collective Schizophrenias by Esme Wajin Wang, um, which I've been wanting to read for a really long time, and it didn't disappoint at all. It's absolutely brilliant, a really intelligent and compassionate book about the many manifestations of schizophrenia, which is actually a topic that touches me deeply from personal experiences. Um, so I had that emotional hook in as well as just a general kind of interest. Um, and it combines diagnostic science and case studies with cleverly woven memoir about the author's own experience of living with a diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder um, and bipolar one, which she begins with and then moves into to this new category. And she's she's a brilliant writer. She's a phenomenally smart person. Um, and the book is, is a bit of a call to arms, actually, to reframe how the culture views serious mental illness. Um, the passages she writes about the brutality of enforced hospital hospitalization are very confronting, but also very vital because it's something that it's easy to think about only from one side of the fence, not the other. And I think the humanization of people in altered states is, is really, really important. Um, she also really shows the way that systemic prejudice against people with schizophrenia is born of fear and ignorance. And she describes her own experience at Yale who dealt with her condition incredibly badly. And 
she also she wrote a fashion blog so there's a lot of fantastic stuff about fashion in there as well and her relationship to presenting as a high functioning individual through style you get a real sense of her personality it's fantastic read it sounds great yeah yeah really really good i've heard amazing things about it but you've convinced me as usual hey baby (laughs) what about you so one of the books that I read over the summer, which I'm going to dine out on for a while because I haven't been reading much for pleasure this month um, when it's been very busy, was something that I genuinely enjoyed, Skippy Dies by Paul Murray. This was a bit of a sensation when it was first published in 2010. I don't know if you remember, but it won a load of prizes and everyone was talking about it. And I meant to read it at the time, but I just never did. But I picked it up this summer. It is set in a boarding school for boys in Ireland. It's about a group of teenage friends. One of them, Skippy, dies on the first page, as you can tell from the title. And the novel is sort of about what happens leading up to that moment and a little bit after it. The narrative follows the perspectives of of a few different students and teachers in the boarding school. So you could also call this an ensemble novel. Goes with our theme. But what did I love about this? I loved that it was funny. It was genuinely funny which is not something, well, I think it's quite out of fashion right now. Um, And so I don't think a lot of people try to write funny novels, but also it's very hard to write a funny novel. So he has done it. He's done it. But it is also that mix of humor with deep, wise contemplation of things like love, sex and death. It's so human. I cried all the way through the last chapters. I think I'm very emotional today, but but. It it was genuinely a very moving experience of a book to read, and I, I would really recommend it. That sounds wonderful. Also, just the thought of reading a funny book right now makes me feel fuzzy inside. Yeah, teenage boys are really funny. I mean, debatable. <laughs> well, with some comic right. ironic distance from Perfect. them. Perfect, yes. yes. They absolutely can be. No, not, their jokes are not funny. I was going to say, and don't tell them they become insufferable. <laughs> <laughs> That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee Zadie Smith, to Chloe and Maria at Penguin, and to Rory at NTS. Oh, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. Also, please rate, review, subscribe, do all that stuff. It really helps us reach new listeners. Yeah, and the reviews especially really help. So if you do have a moment, go on iTunes and review us. We'd really appreciate it. We would. Thank you. We'll be back in a few weeks for our show live from the Cheltenham Literature Festival, where we are the podcast in residence this year, which is very exciting. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. You'll let me throw it down.